it's lovely to be with you. Uh, we're we're going, um, going for it these next few weeks with, um, you know, the most controversial topic you could bring into a church congregation and see if we're still standing at the end of it. So uh, let's pray for some grace, shall we, as we begin this and see where we can get to. God, thank you so much that in good family we can talk about everything and pray that we will be really good family for each other. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, hopefully you've uh, been passed around these, uh, these body image notes. If you're wondering who this strange, exotic lady on the front cover is, we'll get to that next week. I think it's Rahab. Um, uh, not an actual photo from 4,000 years ago, mind, but um, you know, a depiction of it. Um, over the last three weeks, we've been in the Song of Songs. If you've been joining in that series in person or online, uh, we've had a great time looking at... Um, one of the least preached on books of the Bible, and it's the, a love poem, and it's a love poem between a bridegroom and, and his bride, and she and he, uh, and it's, it's quite graphic in places. It's a fascinating uh, love poem just in and of itself. If you've ever seen Keeping Mum with Rowan Atkinson, uh, he plays a vicar who gets his life revitalized by reading out the Song of Songs. Uh, good film, worth watching. Um, but the, um, what we were trying to do with that mini-series was to frame a thing where we realized that God loves us collectively, but also individually, in a passionate and embracing and a journeying way. He really, really loves us and really wants to know us. And know in the Hebrew is a loaded word. It's the, the word that's used for Adam knew Eve and she begat Cain and Abel in the authorised version. God wants to know us as intimately as a couple could know each other. Not our usual way of thinking about things, but that's what we wanted to frame this in now. Because what we're going to do over the next three weeks is do more of a a close look at what's actually going on uh, for us in this world and trying to navigate living in this increasingly confusing universe in which we live in. I mean, what are you supposed to do? with your sexuality in our world today? Are you supposed to notch up as many conquests as you can possibly do? Uh, Are you... That's about it, isn't it? You're supposed to notch up as many conquests as you can possibly do. What what defines or what helps us to understand who we are as sexual or relational human beings on the planet today? Uh, And does God have anything to say in this at all? Is it arrogant to think that God might have something to say? Is it, is it too dangerous to think he might have something to say? Or can we sort of open up the scriptures and begin to muse through for this? Let me explain some of the rationale for trying to do this, if, if I can. And, and it's, it's partly when you, um, in my case as a father, you might, for a, for a godchild or, or in all sorts of other ways, look at a, a girl starting out in life. Um, one of the common conversations blokes have with each other is, if they've got daughters, is to say what they'll do to the boyfriend <laughs> who comes around the house when she's 15. Um, you know, they're talking, I'm going to give them to. And there's something even in a flawed human father that looks at a little girl and says, crikey, whatever happens in your life, when it comes to relationships... <laughs> I really want to be there for you and intervene if it looks like it might be going wrong. 
Does that, does that clock as a human sort of thing that, that a father might do? I, I can't speak for the mothers. Um, I imagine you've got strong opinions and all sorts of things. Looking at some of you, I know you do. I won't name it for the tape. Um, it's, it's, it's a thing, isn't it? There's a sense that we want to be protective. So if God, one of the chief ways he identifies himself is as father to us, as Abba Father, as good father, does it not also stand to some reason that he might want to be protective of us as well? Given that our relationality, our sensuality, our sexuality can be some of the places that most deeply affirm us, but actually, if you clock back through your life or the lives of people that you love around you, can also be the places that most deeply devastate us as well. Does it not make a bit of sense that God might want to try and protect us through uh, perhaps giving us a framework on how to think about things? Now, I said to the nine o'clock service, if you happen to be the sort of people who like being told what to do, <laughs> um, this series isn't going to be for you. I'm going to try and avoid telling you what to do, um, as if I would know exactly. What I'm going to do is be opening up the Bible and exposing us to something that's so counter our culture <laughs> that it might just help us to think for ourselves whether we want to put brakes on sometimes. It might love us away from our our suicide leaps or Satan games. It might just cause us to think, and you, you can take it or leave it, uh, depending where you're at in life at the moment. And what I want to do in this first session is offer you a framework for thinking. Uh, so this first session is about beginnings and endings. With any issue in the Bible, be it the role of uh, gender or, or of sex or of money or of uh, the environment, what you need to do is look at what it says at the beginning and what it says at the very end, and then realise that any other passage that you read is in, the, in, in between those two things, yeah? Um, so what does it say at the beginning about sex and relationships, and what does it say at the very end? And that's what we're going to be looking at through three passages uh, shortly, so do fasten your seatbelts and I'll begin. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Um, at, the, at the end of this creation poem in Genesis 1, um, there is this extraordinary pinnacle of the creation as described that God changes the way he describes from being, uh, everything else so far as being good. God's made the animals, it was good. He's made the plants, it was good. He's made the sea, it was good. He's made the stars, it was good. He's made the sun, it was good. And then he makes humanity. And he says it was very good. And that was it. He then rests from his labours. What makes it very good? Well, the clue, and the clue to, in, in, in fact, the whole series comes in Genesis 1, verse 26, when God speaking says let us make humans or humanity in our image in our likeness now who is the our who is the plural here some uh, monotheistic jewish commentators or secular commentators would say this is um, god having a conversation with angels saying you know let's make people in in our sort of heavenly image but for a christian looking back on it through the lens of jesus and the spirit it makes sense doesn't it that this is god the trinity talking among themselves, going, let's make humans with the sort of relationality that we have. God exists for eternity in glorious relationship. And he says, why don't we make some part of creation that can relate to each other like we can? How does this creation relate to each other? How does God relate to his, him, himself and his different persons? Through the extraordinary bond of love. So let's make something in creation that can love 
with a, a thing that holds it together and defines it. And that's humanity. And he makes it, it makes it to rule. Verse 27, God created uh, humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right from the get-go, there's a sort of a binary where God creates male and female within this. And there's a sense that it's, it's only when those two are there that it makes the image of God. That it's not the image of God without that diversity and unity coming together. Which makes sense if you think about the Trinity, because you've already got diversity and unity in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all the other ways of understanding it. Male and female become a fundamental category before the fall, before we get to the mess in the middle. Male and female. Now, you and I know, because we live in the 21st century, that the world doesn't seem to be that simple anymore, does it? I've recently been at Durham University, where I'm studying a doctoral course, and did a module around gender. And uh, there are now seven officially recognised genders at Durham University. And some other places, it's gone into the, into the double figures and more. Um, but we need to clock it. In the beginning, before the fall, and in creation, there's the two. And uh, if you identify with any of those other um, ones, then we'll come on to that next week, because uh, we'll see how that seems to have come about. So here we have, we've got male, female, together making the image of God. And uh, God has made them in his image. And he gives them one commandment at the beginning. Um, And it's a very simple commandment. Um, In verse 28, it's go and have sex. It's the first commandment given to humanity is to have sex, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, And that's the first thing. Chapter two, second story. Another and a different sort of story, a different creation story, but right in the same place. It's been told many times before that um, originally what happened is God created the woman um, and she thought she might need someone around to help out a bit. And he said to her, well, I can give you a companion, I can give you a helper, um, but the condition is you're going to have to tell him that he came here first because <laughs> otherwise his ego won't be able to cope with it. It's a difficult sort. Um, and so it got recorded in the way that we have in chapter 2. And, uh, and so here we have the story. The earth man, Adam, and, and Eve, who is formed from one of his ribs, uh, and she's called bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, taken out of man. Uh, and the reason that she is formed is because in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's not good for Adam to be there on his own. In other words, even though he had been made in God's image, there was a longing within him for the relationality, for relationship. Even though Jesus was walking around in the garden with him, he still needed human contact. And so God created another human for him. Biologically, they were united as one flesh, male and female together united. Uh, And we have this sort of basis of marriage in chapter 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And then critically, in verse 25, they were both naked and they felt no shame. It's so different to the world we live in, isn't it? Uh, At the moment, you... um, You'll see all sorts of pictures uh, for beach bodies. You know, get your beach body ready in magazines. And even when we're sort of covered up in the most allegedly indecent places, there's still a sort of a, I don't really want to be seen thing that goes on with us now. We do not live in Eden anymore. Something has changed. But this is how it's described in the beginning. 
Now, there may be some of you here today saying, look, Richard, I did GCSE biology, I did A-level biology, I've done a degree in it, or I've just read, you know, the new scientist once in my life or, or, or whatever. Um, this is just myth. None of it really matters today. It's just a way of describing things for primitive people. Um, and I can totally understand that perspective. But on, on the study notes on uh, page four, I've uh, just referenced you, uh, Dennis Alexander, a Cambridge biologist uh, who I happen to know, uh, and his book, Creation or Evolution, uh, and how he um, sort of takes you through over uh, numerous pages um, what he thinks that God is doing completely consistently with evolutionary theory here in terms of speaking into what he calls uh, homo divinus, and you can read up on that if you like. But certainly in Bible terms, um, it may not be utterly essential, but it makes a lot more sense if there is an actual... Um, first humans, who are at very least have God breathed into them, little as it's described in this story, who gain a sort of level of consciousness, uh, culpability, understanding, and that sort of thing. And how you see that happening on many days doesn't really matter in the Bible. Um, but what, what does matter is, is this story behind it of, of what God does with them and how they're in his image, how we're not just overgrown monkeys of no importance whatsoever, not just a biological fruit that could have happened on any planet, but are actually carefully created and ongoingly created in the image of God. We're, we're different, and that's very, very important in Christian teaching. So in the beginning, man, woman, put together in a garden, told to have sex, told to enjoy each other, no shame. Uh, seems utterly happy and blissful. We'll see what happens to them next week. Um, But what of the other end of the story? What about in heaven? Um, And the main thing that we know about this in terms of relationships comes from one of those times when Jesus was being grilled by someone who didn't like him. Uh, And in the Old Testament law, you might remember this from the story of King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Um, If you uh, had a brother who was married and he died your responsibility was to marry your brother's wife. Um, That's what King Henry VIII did with uh, Catherine of Aragon. Um, And then, as they grilled Jesus, they say, well, what if there's, you know, one woman, and she marries one brother, and he dies, she marries the next brother, and he dies, marries the next brother, he dies, marries the next brother, he dies. She gets through seven of these fellows. Um, At the resurrection, you know, who's the married couple there, guys? (laughs) It's a great question, isn't it? Like, it's sort of like trick trick riddle. Um, and I suppose, you know, in our, our day, we might relate that to ourselves. You know, I've had, um, you might think, I've, you know, you have several partners or marriages or different things, you know. When we get to heaven, who am I going to be stuck with? <laughs> how's, it, how's it going to work out? And Jesus says, look, you're in error because you don't understand the Bible and you don't understand the power of God either. Uh, and why, why is that? Well, on the one hand, these people didn't believe in the resurrection anyway. That's, that's where they didn't understand the Bible. But nor did they understand the power of God. And the power of God, as he pictures it, is that in eternity, we're going to be like the angels. We'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. In other words, although the first commandment was to go and have sex, in eternity, you're not going to be having sex. And you're not going to be married. And that might seem like a bit of a raw deal. You might say, that's a bit rubbish, isn't it? But whatever's going on in eternity has to be better than what's here. 
Does it mean that you won't know your dearly and maybe departed loved one that you've been longing to be reunited with? Now, I, I'm sure it doesn't mean that either. And in the notes, I've got a nice quote from Focus in the Family that you can read more on that. But what it means is that something of both the intimacy and the ecstasy that we will have in heaven will transcend anything that in this life, sex and sensuality and sexuality is a pointer towards. It's going to be better and more intimate and more ecstatic than anything you can experience in this life. And you might say, Richard, you're not doing it properly. You've no idea. But it is true. It's beyond anything we can have now. And one of the reasons is, is given in, in 1 Corinthians 13, in one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Do you know the passage? Love is patient, love is kind. Uh, and Paul says at the end of that passage, then we will fully know, even as we are fully known. Now, one of the joys about our sensuality and sexuality now is there's a sense that with one person, by preference, you sort of let your guards down. And some, someone's invited, literally in, to, to your inner circle, to your space. You're known more clearly than you are. It's actually one of the reasons that you know, one-night stands aren't, aren't anything like what we really are on the deepest level longing for, which is that utter knownness. But even within the best relationships, there's huge amounts of us that we have to hide away. Even the most open of couples will have fantasies and other things going on in their head that they feel like they dare not tell the other person. Because if they knew who I really was, would they still like me? So that's the question, isn't it, behind? When Bridget Jones said, he loves me just the way I am, A, it was a complete lie, um, and it turned out not to be true in the second film anyway. But B, it was, it was that longing expressed, but, but, but not grounded. And in eternity, we will be fully known. You might say, well, that sounds even worse. At first, there's no sex, and then everyone's going to know what I'm actually like. You're not selling this eternity to me. I'm off to be a Muslim. <laughs> I <have> 40 virgins. <laughs> but it's actually, it's an incredible thing. What will happen in eternity, I, I, I think, this is how I understand it, and you can take it as you like, is that the things that we now carry as shame, as pain, as guilt, as hurt, the things that we try and hide away, the things that we feel make us less than who we are, will be on display, as they will be for everyone. But there won't be a single person in that great throne room who is there on their own merit. Every single one of us will get there and be like, it's amazing, I'm here, look at me, I didn't deserve to be here, but it's incredible why I'm here. What a mess I made, but I'm here, I'm here, and you're here, and he, of course, he's here, who knew? She's here, well, how, who knew that? Oh my God, Dennis, <laughs> who knew? But we will be fully known. And the bits that seem like a shame will, instead of being a deficit, will be covered with glory, with gold, if you like. Our wounds will have been changed. Our scars will have been changed. The precious jewels. 
And we'll look at them and go, that was Jesus who did that. That was Jesus who did that. Glory to him. I didn't deserve to be here. One little bit. But I'm here because of him, and you're here because of him. Isn't it amazing? And we'll all be there on this extraordinary level playing field, and the thing that we've been longing for, to be known and fully known, will be realized in glorious, glorious relationship at last. The longing for intimacy and the ecstasy of when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll all be in that place. It's a beautiful thing to look forward to. So to land for today. Next week, we're going to look at the mess in the middle. The week after that, we're going to look at how God redeems us when we've made mistakes and how those scars can turn to glory even here on earth through the, the story of Hosea and the scriptures. The beautiful weeks of teaching. I hope you'll be here for them. Um, but what do we do with this? Christian teaching drags us often either back to Eden or forward to heaven. Um, and I, I want you to sort of go away and wrestle with which one of those is the best for you. The, the back to Eden sort of says, well, the fall and all the mess that happens after that and the gender imbalances and all the other things that gets messed up with our sexuality and sensuality we'll look at next week. Um, it, why don't we try and put all that back in a box and get back to Adam and Eve, it, man and woman married together. And, and we'll, we'll try and do what we were originally supposed to do. And sometimes we'll try really hard because it almost feels against our nature to do this. Um, and on the other end, in heaven, effectively, we're all going to be single in community together and worshipping God. So why don't we start a nunnery or a monastery and be single in community together? And part of the Christian story and your Christian story will be to work out, given who you are right now, given how much your Father in heaven loves you, given however many scars you've accumulated that one day you're going to be so proud of because they're going to point to Jesus. How do you walk between Eden and eternity and make sense of who you are right now the best? I'm not going to tell you how to do that. I'm just inviting you to enter into that journey within that framework where you know you're utterly loved, where he's laid out some ideals, where he's laid out a glorious future. In response to how much he utterly loves you, what do you think is going to be the best way to live that out now? And why? Why?